Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives. Also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By Retro Cirque on YouTube. Home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in Retro Cirque, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash podcast, including Mr. Cheeseball, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Mashad, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Rabbite, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Okay, no frills for this one. We're just going to tell it to you straight. This is our fourth anniversary show, as well as a show that celebrates 50,000 downloads for us, and it's our annual charity episode. Just by clicking on this show and listening to it from July 9th to July 23rd of 2023, we'll be donating $1 per download to the World Wildlife Fund, aka the WWF that isn't overrun by wrestlers. I am a I said, is it overrun by wrestlers? Thank you. We'll tell you a little bit more about what this charity does later on in the show. But for now, let's get to the reason why we're here to begin with. Earlier in the spring, I had the pleasure to speak with former writer and executive producer of The Simpsons and current snack food enthusiast, Mr. Bill Oakley. The main discussion was about the episode of The Simpsons titled The Principal and the Pauper from 1997, which you're more than welcome to listen to whenever you want to. That's episode number 87. But as long as I had Mr. Oakley's attention, there were many other questions that I wanted to ask him not just about The Simpsons, but about his career in general, where comedy and writing may be heading, even a little input as to what he and his fellow writers hope to accomplish in resolving the, as of this recording, ongoing writer's strike with the WGA. It was a conversation that I won't soon forget, and we present it to you now in a piece that we're calling Bill Oakley, Uncut, Unsteamed, Unhand. What you're about to hear is the full interview in its entirety, with the exception of a few ancillary and arbitrary cuts that will be made for pacing purposes. Also, just so it can fit in the plug for our charity at the midpoint, this interview is going to be split into two parts. The first part will discuss Oakley's origins and beginnings in show business, and the second part will involve the principal and the pauper, plus all the other stuff that happened in his career since then. With that in mind, Telehell proudly presents part one of Bill Oakley Uncut, Unsteamed, Unham. So now, from the top, uh, state your name, what you do, and all that stuff. My name is Bill Oakley. I'm a comedy writer and best known for being a showrunner or co-showrunner of The Simpsons back in the day with my partner, Josh Weinstein. We were on the show for seven years. We ran show episodes. I'm sorry. We wrote 12 episodes and we ran seasons seven and eight. And then we also created another show called Mission Mission Hill. We both worked on Futurama. We've done lots of other things since. Uh, and since then, mainly, I have been writing all sorts of other things, including an audio book, very successful book called Space 1969, and fashioning myself into a food celebrity. And I'm about halfway there, I'm proud to say. All right. Very good. So uh, now we're going to uh, 
we're going to pretty much run down the list of the questions I already sent you. And uh, I may like add an extra word or two from the originals or so, but other yeah, than that, it, it, it's essentially the same. So uh, actually, uh, one question I forgot to add, if it's not too personal to start with, uh, tell me a little bit about your upbringing, where you were born and your kind of family life and all that stuff. Yeah, I was I was raised on a farm. And not really a non-operating farm so much in Maryland, up in the country, a part of Maryland near uh, Pennsylvania. And um, although I had a brother and sister, they were both much older. So I was kind of an only child and spent a lot of time reading a mad magazine. That was what I did. And that's where I got my sense of humor. And I started out as a cartoonist because my brother had gone to college and left this whole attic full of mad magazines from the 60s. Um, and this was back in the day. It's hard to express to people today. There wasn't that much for for kids to do back then. I mean, you went outside and played, sure, but TV, like the TV, wasn't on all day for kids, and there was no cable. So you you know you'd find stuff to do, like reading old paperback books or old, in my case, Mad Magazine, and that's kind of how I became obsessed with this whole thing that eventually became my career. All right. Well, that actually uh, covers uh, early influences on the first question there. Uh, was like there anything else aside from Mad Magazine? I mean, you mentioned there wasn't that much TV, but still, TV in the sixties. I mean, that was like a revolutionary time just for the medium in general. I mean, there had to have been something that really struck your attention at that point. Fortunately, I wasn't watching too much TV. I'm a little too young for questions about the 60s. So, but okay, I, okay. I was <laughs> early 70s. Yeah. I mean, but I didn't like that stuff. I mean, I liked the Brady Bunch when I was, when I was six years old, I would love, to, I watched shows, I watched a lot of cartoons. I watched a lot of I Love Old, I Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke episodes. Of course. And I watched um, Brady's, the Brady Bunch, Partridge Family, things like that. Um, Six Million Dollar Man, back when that was a thing. But I didn't like the, the shows that were relevant, like All in the Family, um, were not amusing to me. Um, the other influences would have been other shows from the 60s, like specifically Green Acres was a show. This, Green Acres heavily influenced the creation of The Simpsons. One time we did a thing, um, everybody told, and then we were in the room, people talked about what their favorite show was growing up. Ten of the 12 writers, including Matt Groening, their favorite show had been Green Acres. And there's some episodes of Green Acres that I've seen recently where you're like, this could have easily been an episode of The Simpsons, except the characters are slightly different. But um, So that was, a, that was an influence as well. And then as I got older, things like Saturday Night Live and um, National Lampoon were, were large influences in my teen years. Uh, as well. And David Letterman, definitely. Uh, you know, it's funny you mention uh, Green Acres because like four nights a week, I'm I'm out of my uh, gym doing cardio and all the TVs are on. And we there's a me TV channel there. I cannot even begin to tell you how many. And this is just like with the captions on and loud fans going off and all that stuff. And Green Acres is on right after Andy Griffith. And it's amazing that to this day, a show like that still has some staying powers, as I'm sure many other TV shows to this day still have uh, staying power. And uh, it's inter it's interesting that you mention Green Acres. It's also just kind of on a personal note, kind of interesting that you mentioned the Brady Bunch, because on our show, we kind of have this running gag where the Brady Bunch is actually my immortal enemy just because I covered yeah. that because I covered their variety show a couple of years ago. And just. Oh, yeah, I, I, I tease. I mean, the, a lot of the stuff that I review is kind of tongue in cheek. I don't 100 percent mean what I say, but just because of how cheesy it was and it just like people actually watch this question mark. 
exclamation oh, well the variety show was i think it was known even at the time that it was stupid oh, yeah. um the much read the regular show uh was very entertaining for kids and it was very and like the problem was as the kids got older uh it became less entertaining for kids and that's what they tried to add cousin oliver and the whole wheels came off <laughs> around that time but all the later incarnations of it were not i mean you couldn't recapture that magic especially in a variety show. I mean, that's that's why it's one of the most famous TV calamities of all time. They tried to do it in some of the TV movies, but I, I guess without a laugh track, it, it kind of loses something in translation or something. It's just not the same thing. It was a real period piece, and it really didn't, like, uh, you know, it, people have affection for the characters, but as a universe, it didn't really move forward into the 80s like other, some few other shows did. Exactly. So uh, now uh, continuing with uh, the early years, uh, how early in your life did you achieve the first big laugh that you like, like, have you ever like ever set out to make people laugh at a young age or did just something like click automatically and you think to yourself, hey, I can make a good living out of this? You know, I don't actually have that many occasions where I saw people laugh at my stuff because I wasn't a stand up comedian. The stuff I would right. do would, would be like cartoons. Like I, I began... I drew, I started drawing fairly decent cartoons at like the age of six and copying stuff out of mad. And then um, as I got older, I started to draw cartoons for the high school newspaper uh, and they were popular enough that I had one in every issue. And so that, I guess that was probably the early part of that. Um, and then culminating in my senior year, I started this humor magazine and Josh, who went to the same high school and was my best friend, was also co humor magazine editor with me. And we, um, it was a really good magazine, you know, much better than the average college humor magazine at that day. And we were only in 12th grade. Um, so uh, that kind of thing. And then I knew at that point that was kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to college, be on a humor magazine back when humor magazines were more of a thing at colleges. And um, that it all kind of was a straight line from there. And, you know, the question was whether I would remain a cartoonist or become a writer. That was a transition that I made in college. Okay. Now, before we get to college, you did mention uh, your partner a couple times, and uh, you know, working in high school, all that stuff. Uh, how long have you known Josh Weinstein, and like, how far back? I guess you could say, does the friendship go? How much does the partnership go back, and all that stuff? It's just like, when did you realize this guy would be pretty much your partner in crime? Uh, Nineteen eighty. So I guess that's forty-three years ago. Um, when he arrived, we were in, he arrived at the school in ninth grade. And prior to that, there weren't really, I had a lot of, I mean, I had some other friends, but they weren't really like into like that, you know, the human or the comedy world, like Josh was and I were. And, and so we had, um, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that we were going to become friends and that we had a lot of shared interests in, you know, certain comedy TV shows and movies and National Lampoon and things like that. Which, uh, by no natural segue whatsoever, brings us to the college years. Hey, Egghead, sing Fair Harvard. Fair Harvard, I... <laughs> you, sir, have the boorish manners of a Yaley. Here's a witty rejoinder for you. You went to Harvard. How did you get involved with the Harvard Lampoon? Well, to be honest, I wanted to go to Stanford and we were Josh was going, but I did not get in. Um, and the Harvard was, was, was my 
backup school. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but um, <laughs> part of the thing was that the Stanford, I wanted, you know, both Josh and I were heavily influenced by things like Animal House back in the day. And we, I wanted to go to a, a college that had more of a social life, you know, fraternities and stuff like that, uh, rather rather than Harvard, which did not have that type of thing. Um, and But I did know it had the Lampoon. And I already was familiar a little bit with the Harvard Lampoon because I knew that was where the founders of National Lampoon had gotten and they licensed it. And there were a couple up in the attic in my house uh, when I was growing up, not only were there old Mads, there were also National Lampoons and at least one Harvard Lampoon parody. So I was familiar with the Harvard Lampoon. And when I got there, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that that was the number one thing I wanted to do. And I think it's quite likely that I would have transferred to another school, more like UVA type school, mm -hmm. um, if I had not gotten on the Lampoon immediately, which I did uh, first. Um, and it's not also, this is the thing that when you find out when you get to Harvard, you can't just join the freaking clubs it's not that easy the clubs have a have a competition to get on most of the of the clubs not all of them but many of them for instance the newspaper which is the harvard crimson or um the literary magazine or things like that almost all of them they don't just let anybody in there's a competition to get on so that was the first hurdle you couldn't just walk in the door and i was like okay well what's the best way for me to get on it's by doing my car my cartoons and so i already had not only that i already had a large library of ones i had already done that i could just kind of submit there were comic strips and things and at that time i think they they were in need of more cartoony style artists so fortunately i had a pretty easy path to getting on and and at the same time uh the only other freshman who got on was david cohen who is now known as david x cohen mm -hmm. um, and we became great friends as well now uh it's 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 funny that you mentioned all that stuff about uh you know you have to pretty much jump through all sorts of hoops just to join a club at Harvard cuz the only thing i can think of right now as you're saying this is the social network the movie and the fact that there's all like these uh i guess uh, the term is finals clubs yes it, it, and that it's very like ritualistic like in on those those I, are I, different the lampoon is is not quite like those it's different like those are are well, first of all those are fa fairly snooty um, right. And for for hundreds of years, they only you know allowed in the most upper crust white men. They still don't. Most of them still don't allow any women. Mm. Um, and it's a lot of about it's a lot about social class. And I did. Uh, I, I think I had the opportunity to get on a couple of them, but I didn't care enough to go through all their stupid rituals and things that you had to do to get on. And so because I was already in the Lampoon, and I knew that was where I wanted to stay. The Lampoon has a little bit of that, but ultimately. It's a meritocracy to the extent that they don't even necessarily know who you are when you're when you're in the competition. A lot of times there are not even some years they have assigned numbers to you so that people don't even know people who are judging whether your literary pieces or cartoons are good. Don't even necessarily know who you are. And it's and I think it takes pride. Not that doesn't always that's not always the case, but sometimes it is. And then once you get on. There is more of a social aspect. There's a lot of parties that are very good parties and traditionally have been for about a century. But again, it's it's an interesting bunch of people because uh, it's it's an, there's both women and men. There's people from all types of backgrounds, um, and it it's far more diverse than your average flannel club. And uh, one additional sidebar, as long as we're still on this subject, and kind of feels like a sort of inevitability to ask this. I just want to be sure I got the timeline right. Uh, did by any chance you ever run into Conan O'Brien when he was uh, running? Yes, the he was the president when I got on. He, he was, was okay. he was a senior when I was a freshman and uh, he wasn't around all that much then because he was writing his thesis. But, uh, you know, we met on 
a number of occasions and, and at parties and so forth. And, you know, he, we were, we didn't really become, I would say, closer friends until he got on, until we started working at The Simpsons together. But we were, we were well acquainted. Now, uh, obviously, there's still a bit of a ways to go until you get to The Simpsons. So, obviously, when you go to Harvard or any Ivy League school, for that matter, that's pretty much the bad signal to most professionals, I guess, out there. So uh, something had to, I guess, had to have uh, popped up professionally either while you were at school or after you graduated or something like that. Like, what was your first major professional job either after or during Harvard? It was I was working at America's Most Wanted. Do you remember the TV show America's Most Wanted? I did not think that show had writers. <laughs> I wasn't a writer. Now, this is actually, I knew that I wanted to be, I didn't have a, a job. I mean, I had a couple other jobs during the summer, like working at this, I worked briefly at the at deli at the supermarket and crap like that. But right. when I graduated, I went back to live with my parents in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be in TV. And most of the TV shows in Washington were like Meet the Press. They're all like serious news shows. There was only one semi-entertainment program at all being done in Washington, D.C., and it was America's Most Wanted. And this was during the early days of the Fox Network. And the show was live. Um, and it was at, at a television studio that wasn't even far away from me. It was like a 15-minute you know, bus ride up the street. And I um, I don't remember how I heard. I think I just wrote them a letter. I wrote them a cold letter and said, I'd love to work on your show in any capacity. And it turned out there had been, I wanted to be a reporter for them, you know, but I didn't know the first thing about crime reporting and they take that real seriously. So, but it turned out the guy who was the promotions coordinator was just leaving right when they got the letter. So they called me up and said, hey, come in. Would you like to be the promotions coordinator? And what does that mean back? I mean, it means like I would write press releases and I would do things like the listings for TV guide. Um, eventually I got to write and um produce promos that went on the air for the show. And I also would be the host to the cops. The cops would come from around the country uh, to be there live when the phone calls came in for their cases. And so I would meet and greet the cops and and give them coffee and whatever. And, uh, And so that was like, and it was extremely exciting because the show, there was a lot of electricity around the show because number one, it was a huge hit at that time. And it was also live. Uh, and it was like, it was exciting because the phone, the moment we started broadcasting the thing about, you know, the recreation of whatever this criminal did, yeah. the phones would start ringing off the hook, thousands of calls from all over America. And sometimes it was so dramatic. Like one time we caught the guy before the show ended that the, the person had been that because the, uh, the a guy who was in a motel room with the wanted fugitive called when he saw the recreation was like, this guy's in the hotel room with me. you got to come get him before he wakes up. And he had been arrested before the show even ended. So it was a lot of, it was, you know, they say live television is very exciting and it is, uh, I had a very small role to play, but it was a role nonetheless. So, I really like that show. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean that, that's a pretty wild uh, career trajectory, I guess, to go from that to then, uh, writing for various comedies and just like, yeah, you got to get your foot in the door somehow. But I did not think that it was going to be that particular doorway. That kind of shocked me. It it didn't really, it wasn't really a straight line. I did actually go, they sent me to LA to meet all the executives at Fox um, this back in the early days. And I did meet with them and it didn't really have any connection to us eventually getting hired there, except that I knew some of the guys already. Um, That was a long, then after that we had a long, a hard period of about four years or three years when we were desperately unemployed, which I can go into detail about if you want. Um, I mean, uh, I I can only imagine it's going to be the same story as any other writer out there because it is a very hard business to break into. And, you know, again, going just. Oh, yeah. And it didn't like 
I'll yeah. tell you, I'll tell you the version. You can edit it out if it doesn't, if this is boring. Yeah, sure. Okay. So we, we had gotten the job. We, our first TV job was writing for this cable show. It was a, uh, a cable game show on a show on a, what you, there used to be comedy central used to be two networks in right. 1989. It was, it was ha. And it was the comedy channel, right? We got a job working at a show on ha. We've got to strengthen our knees, strengthen our knees for comedy. We've got to strengthen our knees, strengthen our knees for ha. The new TV comedy network. Ha means comedy round the clock every day of the week. We've got to strengthen our knees, strengthen our knees, strengthen our knees for ha. We've got to strengthen our knees, strengthen our knees for comedy. We've got to strengthen our a TV comedy round the clock turned to high, the new TV comedy network. Um, and it was the salary was paltry, but it was very exciting because we got to move to New York and, and write for this write comedy for the show. And then we got um we actually got hired because of an article we written for Spy Magazine. We got hired to work on a show in LA, and it was the most exciting thing in the world. Uh, because we got to move to LA and work on this show. And the show, it was a comedy show, and they had great cast of people writers from letterman and spy and it was super cool and it was canceled after three episodes and then we were unemployed for about two years Mm. (laughs) and it was uh it was bad because we had like you know you have to write um a spec the coin of the roman sitcom writing at least back then was a spec script which is a script you write a free episode for no money you write an episode of a show you like to show that you can write comedy in a a professional way and 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 mimic the tone of a show that someone else has right right so we had written a a script for a show called coach which you may remember the show coach which was never a show that anyone really liked that much (laughs) nobody liked that show very much it never got any awards you know it's the strangest thing and and this seems to be like a trend with a lot of sitcoms especially ones that run for like a solid decade and then winds up in like the Siberia of syndication like the last time I saw an episode of coach I was working morning radio in the Catskills and I had to get up at like 4 a.m. just to bring myself to mind and sure enough on one of the local channels but this was like before the news started at 4 a.m. but there it was an episode of coach it's like wait is this was a thing that was on tv and, and it was very successful for a while. I, it, it was successful, and yet hardly anybody like you don't see it on the digital yeah. channels. You no, don't see, see it on, like there's lots of shows like that, like that Jim Belushi. According to Jim, that Jim Belushi show, which was on for like ten years, um, that, has also that, gone into oblivion. That, but that's a, anyway, that's another can of worms. But anyway, yes, go on. We wrote this coach script, and it, it what to be honest, it was just as good as the average episode of Coach. But nobody gave a shit because they didn't think Coach was very good. <laughs> and it finally took you know people were trying to get it. We were going around town with this, and like finally. It took a guy um a guy to tell us like listen we got a guy who through connection to read it the guy said it's clear that you guys don't really like this show very much you need to write a new script with a show that you like and we're like oh that is good advice but man we're out of money and i already applied both of us had decided to give up at that point approximately and i had already tried to apply for a job at the state department because i was like i thought that would be a good job for me and they sent the foreign service exam the foreign service exam is an exam you have to take you know, about world politics and events to even get considered for a job at the state department. And it was so hard. It was so hard. Even the practice materials were so hard. And I didn't know anything about Azerbaijan or whatever. And I was like, okay, let's write another script. Let's just do this. Let's do what that guy said and write one more script and see what happens. 
And so we did. And so this time we were like, we're going to write the, a script for the show that we truly love. And it was a show that had only been on for four episodes called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Um, back, yes. And it was back. People don't remember that early, but it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles initially. And it was also really unpopular. But it had, you know, it had gotten a buzz amongst people in the writing community, and we thought it was so funny. And we wrote this episode, and we, we got it to this, and this got us a new agent immediately. And the agent loved it, and it immediately opened all these doors. It was, it was shocking, the transition. Like within, like we had been unemployed, like within two weeks, we were having a meeting at Cheers, we were having a meeting at Murphy Brown, and all these other shows, because people were like, these guys are young, cheap guys who can write a really good script, or, or something that you want to get on your show, um, especially if they're a team, because you can make them split a salary. So we, uh, in the midst of all those meetings, the guys at The Simpsons. Got a, got a copy of it. And one of Mike Reese and Al Jean, only one of them had even heard of Seinfeld at that point, I was told, but they thought it was good. And they decided, decided let's offer these guys a, a script, a Simpsons script. Uh, and they did. And they called us in and we, they had a story made up already called Marge Gets a Job, which Conan had made up where right. Marge works at the power plant and Mr. Burns falls in love with her. And they're like, we want you to write this. And so we, we wrote it and we did a pretty okay job. Like it, it was, I mean, in retrospect, having run the show, you know, it's very hard for people who aren't working on the show to write a very good Simpsons script um, because it's just, it, take, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of skill, a lot of knowledge of the way, you know, how long the scenes are and stuff. And, Our if, I, was, and, and, and if I may uh, just uh, very interject, uh, interject very quickly, uh, this actually brings up another point because uh, you see a TV show and it says written by, and it's usually just one name, but there's, a lot more to it than just the one person sometimes. So uh, I guess, oh, for uh, sure. I, I guess the question now is uh, like, what's the difference between being a like bold faced underlined writer for a show and also being a staff writer? Cause I, I know that there's like the, they're like the feeder fish basically who are uh, the pilot fish that clean up around you basically, isn't it? There, well, there's a certain level, there's a certain series of levels and this is only really for sitcoms, not for things like, variety shows sure um everyone that you see on the credits is often a writer of some sort and it goes staff writer staff writer is the lowest rung then there's story editor executive story editor co-producer producer supervising producer co-executive producer and executive producer and those are the rungs that you know basically if you're on a show lucky to be on a long-lived show every year you get promoted one one of those ranks um, and then, you know, and, and so like, for instance, when you see it on, on the Simpsons, there's a lot of executive producers because there's a lot of people who've been there for 20 years now right. and there's no real way for them to, there's no way to, for them to be promoted any further. Um, but you do, you know, usually get a raise. And this is one of the unfortunate things that we don't have, that most TV shows don't have anymore. And one of the things that's probably going to cause this strike is now almost every show, there's like six episodes and the show's gone. And right. so there's no opportunity for people to advance and there's no opportunity for young writers to get the experience of being on the set or in the editing room uh, that there used to be. And it's just causing, you know, everybody's sick of this gig economy writing, TV writing. You know, if you're lucky enough to be on a show like CSI or NCIS or The Simpsons, you're still operating like it's 1990. Every other show is this Netflix model where it's like six writers, you get six writers in for 10 weeks and then they're unemployed. And it's annoying, as, you know, it's causing everybody to go broke. You know, the, the the irony about that, about the whole Netflix model, is that TV shows in the UK have appa- apparently been uh, running by that very 
format for years. You do six episodes. There's one writer though. That because there's one it, almost inevitably TV shows in UK are written by one person. All all the episodes. That 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 would probably explain. Yeah. A lot, a lot. I guess it's a lot more stricter over there and you know, a lot more uh, regimented, I guess. I, I don't know. Just, but I mean, yeah, the, the, especially with like streaming becoming more and more and more and more prevalent these days, you know, the pie itself winds up getting even thinner in terms of just looking for a little piece of it. And it's just like, well, you would think with that, but all these companies such as Netflix uh, are making record profits, are making a mint. I'm and sure they are. They're not, and they're not because they've very carefully, they have all teams of people constantly figuring out every way that you could possibly nickel and dime someone at every loophole and every contract, you know, and, and that's their job is to figure out ways to minimize costs and whatever. And they've come up with this new system that is making, you know, all but the very most elite writers go broke or, you know, not be able to pay for their kids uh, dental work or whatever you know it's like it's a very annoying time to be a writer uh and, and i'm glad that i at least got to participate in the time when it was not so annoying yeah now hopefully uh everybody gets uh, what they deserve I, I i i appreciate a good story when it comes to just about any form of media whether it be tv or movies or whatever as long as the story is captivating and entertaining and not something that can easily be cuisinarded, so to speak, and just recycled over and over and over again. Like they, they always say there is no originality in Hollywood anymore. And it becomes truer by the day because people just keep giving everybody what they want. Let's make another superhero movie. Let's make another sequel movie. Let's make another this thing, that thing. Like, yeah, it's like originality is a four letter word. And people but, don't, they don't understand. Yeah. A, a lot of you know, people, a lot of times the originality doesn't get rewarded, which is why places are hesitant to order shows or make movies that are original, because a lot of times they don't get people don't like them very much or only a small segment of the population cares about them. And, you know, when it, when obviously sometimes you strike gold, but other times your originality just gets, you know, gets you no viewers. Exactly. And it's sad, but true. But, you know, every once in a while, something does wind up breaking through. And yeah, there is a glimmer of hope there. Now, uh, as far as uh, well, you've already mentioned The Simpsons, you already mentioned uh, how you joined, how you and uh, Josh Weinstein joined. Uh, was there any pressure or intimidation from anybody that was already working there? Like, did you feel like you had to prove yourself or was it really more of a camaraderie kind of thing over there? Everyone was pretty nice. There was no, it was not a, a case, unlike some writing rooms, there was no like raging asshole type uh, person, uh, either the boss or coworkers. Everyone was pretty nice and it was pretty collegial. Um, and there were, um, I would say it was only a high pressure environment in that you knew that these were the best. I mean, even at the time we were, it was the most incredible thing that ever happened that we got hired there because that was the right, like, as much as Seinfeld was great, you knew that was just Larry David pretty much making it up with Jerry Seinfeld. Right. The the Simpsons was the best. It was, before, and I say this long before we got there, known as like the best, it was the best writing room since, you know, you got your early SNL and you got Sid Caesar Hour from the 50s with Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and, yeah. <laughs> and all those guys. This was the writing room. This was the third such writing room in history. And like being asked to join it was flabbergasting. And I, we were very nervous. Definitely. We didn't even know what the job was going to entail. Like we thought we had no idea what it was going to be like from day to day. We'd never had any experience. And so we got there and it's really just like most of the job is sitting in the room all day long, every day, 
coming up with new jokes, you know, for the, for the, for the rewrites of the script. And you got, you know, at that time you had guys like George Meyer and you had John Swartzwelder, you had John Vitti and people and, and Mike and Alan so forth and Conan in the room making up the jokes. And it was like, it was intimidating as hell, but like after a few after a few weeks of sitting there kind of absorbing stuff, we finally got to the point where we would start getting jokes in that we would pitch. Um, and I mean, I think we listened for a long time. And then once in a while, we started getting small, short jokes in. And it was very satisfying. I remember remembering, I wrote down every single one that we got in. Um, and, and you know, and then over time, uh, we got another script assignment, which was that one where Marge goes to jail. And that was the, I think that was when we knew that we had, we had, effectively joined the ranks of the staff because John Vitti told us it was the best first draft of the year. And we were like, holy shit, that's John Vitti saying that. Oh my God. And so we were like, um, you know, I think at that point we, we were confident that we had at least proven ourselves worthy of remaining on the show. Well, I am clearly, you know, especially when you're joining it, like the Zenith of the show, like 92, 93 or so. And that's when they really start putting in like the most, densely layered the most high quality the best possible stuff that there is so from that point onward i mean clearly you and uh, josh uh, making it to executive producer and showrunner it, it had to have been a easy walk in the park home run we benefited from a few other things um because you know it was this is the thing that in season four we were we were brand new in season seven which isn't that long later we were running the show and that was and we were running the show before we were 30 which was exciting and it, mainly a lot a lot of that had to do with the fact that everybody else left you know like every single original writer left at the end of season four except for conan and us and then dan mcgrath had only been hired a few months earlier and that was a remarkable time uh, that was my favorite time of the sh- be ever working on the show when it was just the four of us because we all just went to like Malibu and ate, you know, shrimp tacos while making up the stories for season five. Um, and then uh, David Merkin arrived to take over the show and, and hired a whole new staff. Um, and then over and it became clear. I mean, we were the most senior. And then Conan, the real biggest obstacle to us running the show quickly was the fact that Conan was better than us and and more senior than us. But he suddenly became a huge talk. He suddenly got to be a talk show host, much to everyone's shock, um, about six months into season five. So um, he left. And then we were the most senior guys on the show. And it wasn't I don't think we'd even been there a year. So basically just good luck and timing and just also really damn good scripts i guess it's a combination of uh luck and preparation yeah and i think also when they when david merkin left they didn't there was no other choice like we didn't we 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 actually i'd say in, in retrospect our agent drove a very hard bargain um where we were willing to walk off the show to leave the show unless they let us run it the way that we wanted to run it which was for one year and they said no and then we said, okay, well, never mind. We're going to go to Frasier then. <laughs> and we had, but they finally, they finally gave up after a period of a couple of months. They said, okay, you can run it for one year. And then the agent was able to drive a very hard bargain for us to run it for a second year. The, the, the time that you were there, you and Josh were there. I mean, still just pumping out stuff that is still talked about to this day. Now, given the time frame and only the time frame that you two were there, what would you consider? And you may have already listed a few already, but uh, what would you consider your five favorite episodes from the time that you were at the show, either as a writer, a showrunner or both? Oh man. I, I don't, 
it's it's okay. I don't know if I would say ones that that we wrote even like I would say Homer the heretic. God said to Noah, "There's gonna be a flooding, flooding." Which we had nothing to do with, but we sat we sat there and watched the animatic. I mean, that was technically in the time that we were on the show. Uh, Mr. Plow. Oh, Mr. Plow, that's my name. That name again is Mr. Plow. The Halloween thing that we did with the 3D animation thing. Oh, glory of glories. Oh, heavenly testament to the eternal majesty of God's creation. Holy macaroni! 22 short films. I think that covers it. Aurora Borealis. At this time of year, at this time of day, in this part of the country, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. May I see it? No. Oh, tw- well, now 22 short films. Well, yes, 22 oh. short films and Frank Grimes. Yeah, but look at the size of this place. I-, I-, I live in a single room above a bowling alley and below another bowling alley. Wow. I think that's, that's the fifth one of the thing. But that's also, I think that's only scratching the surface because there's lots of other ones that we produced or that we had, you know, we had a little bit to do with that were also hilarious. Now, my apologies. I, for I li- leave out the ones that we wrote from that list, too. Well, well, well my apologies for limiting things just to five. High Fidelity's uh, favorite movie of mine and John Cusack's all top five <laughs> everything. So just kind of seemed like a boilerplate thing. We will continue with the second part of our conversation with Bill Oakley. After the break. <laughs> Oh, the Grand Canyon. What a Grand Canyon. It's times like these when you think about those closest to you. Think I'll call home. Please say your name. Homer! Yellow? Collect call from Homer? No way, man. I only accept 1-800-collect calls. Give me the times, Homer. Why, you little... Dial 1-800-collect. It's the way to call collect. As a reminder, this is our charity episode for the season, and the charity that we've chosen this year is the World Wildlife Fund. The WWF's vision is... You know something, Sergeant Slaughter, General Adnan, and Colonel Mustafa, ever since WrestleMania, when I won the first battle with all my little holsters, I knew it was just the beginning of the war. Not the wrestlers. That lawsuit got settled years ago. Anyway... The World Wildlife Fund's vision is to build a future in which people live in harmony with nature. To deliver this mission, they work to conserve and restore biodiversity, a web that supports all life on Earth, to reduce humanity's environmental footprint, and to ensure the sustainable use of natural resources to support current and future generations. We celebrate and respect diversity in nature among the people, partners, and communities with whom they work. Through integrity, they live with the principles that they call on others to meet. They act with integrity, accountability, and transparency as they rely on facts and science to guide them and to ensure that we learn and evolve. Through respect, they honor the voices and knowledge of the people and communities that they serve, and they work to secure their rights to a sustainable future. And finally, collaboration. They deliver impact at the scale of challenges that they face through the power of collective action and innovation. 
As a reminder, just by clicking and listening to this episode, you're helping us raise money for a worthy cause. Between July 9th and July 23rd of 2023, every time a listener clicks on this episode and listens to it, we will donate $1 per download to the WWF, up to a maximum of $500. And don't think for a second that we're pressuring you to donate directly to them. You're the ones who click on this. Ergo, you're the ones who are donating. If, however, you'd like to go the extra mile and make an actual donation, you're more than welcome to do so at WWF.org. Either as a one-time only payment, an ongoing monthly payment, or you can use your money to adopt an animal, which, if you donate enough, will be represented by a plush toy. However you want to support this cause is up to you, but just by listening to this show today and over the next two weeks, you're already doing your part on our behalf. To find out more about our charity of the year, visit them again at WWF.org and do your part to help support the lives of the wildlife. We now continue with our interview with Bill Oakley, as we are now about to discuss the making of the Principal and the Pauper episode. Some information you already heard in episode 87, but some things we had to leave out for time purposes. Thankfully, we have all the time in the world now, so in the words of Paul Harvey, and now the rest of the story. So now that we have uh, pretty much uh, cleared the prologue of this, it's time to get to the meat of the matter. The year is 1997, and this uh, episode comes up, The Principal and the Pauper. It is, I believe, uh, episode two of season nine, and we're just going to just jump right into it and ask, how did this episode come about? Let me let me begin by saying, I want to make that start. I'll start the headline. I think this is a great episode. Okay, so okay. I am not. I am not here to trash the episode. I think it's a great episode, and I just watched it ten minutes before we began recording, for for the first time in about ten years, yeah. and I have even a higher opinion of it now than I did then. I still thought it was great back then. Now I think it's terrific. But let me say the following things. One of the reasons Josh and I wanted to leave the show at the end of season eight was we had a number of reasons because first of all it was traditional at that point to run the show for two years and then leave uh secondly we wanted to go create our own show but third of all we also felt the show was not going to be on for much longer and then you know how the wrong that is we we left at the end of season eight what's like season 35 now that was the wrongest thing of all time but (laughs) let me say back then how many sitcoms went for 10 seasons Cheers went for 10 seasons, right. Seinfeld, uh-huh. MASH, and that was it. So we were like, this show doesn't have much more gas in it. We're running out of stories. Who knows what and tomorrow will bring? You're right. And we were like, let's just leave while the getting is good before we run out of stories. We want to be the guys to usher this thing into the grave. And so, and, and I felt that we were already running out of stories by the end of season eight. Now, that said, I don't think Principal and the Popper is one of the stories that I were, that we were running out of. I would have done this that story in season seven. So that's all the pre- prologue to this story. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, yes. So now there are episodes in season, late season eight where I'm like, yeah, that wasn't such a great story. We shouldn't have done that. But this is not one of them. We would have put this proudly put this in season seven or, you know, early on, right. You know, with, with the 300 pound Homer episode or right. whatever, like it was, we did not consider this to be one where we were stretching the, you know, the bounds we were stretching to come up with a good story. Of course. Okay. This is the thing that about this, this episode, mm-hmm. we, when Ken Keeler came in, Ken, Ken Keeler came in with this story. We were looking for stories. We we're always looking for stories in, in late season eight of that were new, that were not the types of stories we had done before. Right. Ken came in with an article from USA Today 
um, about, I think it was USA Today, about a, sol- a Vietnam, a soldier, a, I believe he was a soldier from China, but he, I don't know, or he had been in a, or maybe it was a Vietnam thing where this exact thing had happened. And but what I, what I mean by this exact thing is someone had returned from war after many years and assumed an identity that was not his. And we're like, hey, that's kind of interesting because also around this time, a movie called Summersby had come out. And Summersby starred Richard Gere and it was a remake of a movie called The Return of Martin Gere, which was a very well-regarded movie from 1982. Yes. Okay. The Return of Martin Gere is based on a, a story, an actual thing that happened in like 1560 in France. Right. Where a guy came back from war and assumed someone else's life. And it was kind of clear maybe that the wife knew it wasn't really him, but was willing to go along with it. And as were the other people in the village, and it caused a lot of, and eventually there was a trial and so forth. And it was a great story. And around that time, in in 82, both a book came out, a historical book about this event came out, and the very, very successful movie, Return of Martin Gere, which was remade in the American Civil War as Summersby. So we're like, this is a well-known story. This is a well-known story of someone who comes, and it's a a story that that has a lot of resonance to people. And furthermore, it fits perfectly with what we already know about Principal Skinner. It's already been established that Principal Skinner served in Vietnam, and, and, but it's also never been, what led him to be in Vietnam has never been said. And as soon as Ken came in with that article and we like our main, our brains were spinning just much like I'm saying right now, I said, Oh man, we can do a reference to this. We do a reference to that. It's, it's Agnes Skinner seems exactly like the kind of mother who would be willing to pretend it was her son, even if it wasn't. And people, but the joke is in Springfield, everybody doesn't really, they, they still like the old, they still like the phony one better. Right. And, and it all started to come together and we were like, Oh, we could do Sergeant Skinner, that he'd be boring. And none of that was like, oh, maybe we could get Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen from Apocalypse Now to do this role. And and it all came together quickly. And um, like the story, the architecture of the story is is very simply the return of Martin Gere, but with the twist that Springfield doesn't care about the war hero and prefers to live in this fantasy life <laughs> where Armin Tamsarian is pretending to be Principal Skinner. So we were like, that's an extremely solid story. It's much better than many of the other stories in late season eight. Now this episode, all this episode aired in season nine, it's part of season eight because we, the way that this works, yes, the production order is 22 or 24 episodes, but they overlap. So usually the first two episodes of the next season are leftovers from the previous season. Right. So even though Mike Scully ran season nine, we had the episode, The City of New York versus Homer Simpson, which is the World Trade Center episode, and this one uh, in season nine. All right. Well, now, uh, circling back uh, to, uh, I guess, uh, character origin, so to speak, um, is it safe to ask where the name Armin Tamzarian came from? This is a funny... Okay. if you, Armin Tamzarian is now a judge. This is the weirdest thing. Okay. <laughs> Ken, if you Google Armin Tamzarian, he's a judge in the Los Angeles Superior Court and has been for like 20 years. It was just like, so I hope he doesn't hear this. Um, I mean, he's used to, I'm sure he's gotten this before. I'm sure he probably gets it once a year. Somebody's like, wait, you're Judge Armin Tamzarian? Like people, someone who's seen the, it's a very distinctive name. And someone who's seen this episode of The Simpsons must encounter him every year and be baffled by the fact and, that that's and you know, it, it, You know, it's funny you mention his current occupation because all I can think of is that scene uh, where Skinner's uh, pretty much saying everything. I would wind up one day in front of a judge and just... 
Yes. <laughs> and I wonder if this symmetry. continues to annoy Armand Tamazarian, but the, Ken got the name because he was an insurance. I think Ken had a car accident or somebody ran into him and the an insurance adjuster was Armand Tamzarian. I guess he was an insurance <laughs> adjuster before he went on the career path of becoming a judge. And I think Ken just thought it was a very distinctive name. And and for some reason, Fox did not – there must be at least five Armitanzarians somewhere in America because the lawyers always check the names. There had to be either zero or more than five. So I assume somewhere in America there's at least five or more real Armitanzarians because the legal department let the name go right through. That's right. why – and that's where it came from. Right. And and I is – I mean, you said yourself. I mean, every once in a while he'll – the the real guy will probably uh you know say okay i get it blah 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 like when when the show first aired i mean he had to either have been terrified or pissed or relieved or happy or so i don't know what the reaction was but like when the first when the show first aired like what was I his have a dim, reaction? dim recollection that it called that he called i have a dim recollection that during the time that the show aired or whether or possibly when it aired the second time cuz they always aired the shows twice right that I think he called. And I believe that we just said, give this message to Ken and have Ken return his call. And I think Ken did it. I don't think we ever were told what, what came of it. But I think Ken probably had a nice conversation with him. I can only assume knowing Ken that he said he that he enjoyed the he, he didn't have any complaints. What I, I guess my point being, I think he had a good experience having his car claim dealt with by Armand Tamzarian. <laughs> so it wasn't like some sort of revenge thing. Well, I mean, I figured the episode, it was 1997. Here we are now, like 25 plus years later. There has to be some water under the bridge by now. <laughs> it's probably annoying. I get, you know, the thing is like, I bet, I bet you that Judge Tamzarian is annoyed by this because every time a Simpsons viewer, and there's probably a lot of Simpsons viewers, there are more, way more now who know that name than oh, in sure. 1997. When they get him assigned to their case as the judge, they think it's a joke. I suspect, or there's some, they think it's some sort of prank. <laughs> and so I, my suspicion, my suspicion is it does. It reminds me of a letter one time we got from a lady whose name was Mrs. Homer Simpson. Yeah. Um, who said it was a funny, it, it, we got a, a letter and it was handwritten like in that old lady handwriting. Um, and it was a long handwritten letter that got angrier and angrier and angrier. Like it was obviously a church going <laughs> lady from the South who finally just ended up like saying that we've had so much agony because of your name of your character. And like finally they did with like a fuck you signed <laughs> Mrs. Homer Simpson. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, I, uh, I, I wish I could sympathize with getting that specific kind of letter. I mean, I've, I, it, and at some radio jobs I used to have, uh, you know, some people would write in just not necessarily to me cause I was just a production guy, but uh, you know, just like, some people would actually complain about the music and it would always be written double-sided, single-lined, in cursive. Like you could get the gist of what the anger was, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you feel this way about whatever it is that we played on the air and all that stuff, but have you never heard of a typewriter? But I digress. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, the, most of the letters were handwritten that we got at The Simpsons for sure. Um, now, as far as, uh, you know, the show airs and everything, I guess, that winds up happening happens. Um, and I think I'm going out of order for, uh, this next question. So I will jump back to the other one, but. Well, let me, let me give you the intermediate story. So at the time, there certainly weren't any complaints about the story. 
I think we all got a charge out of it. And and as all the other writers did, and nobody even brought up the idea, are people going to react negatively to this? The right. first person to express a negative sentiment about it was Harry Shearer, mm. who is the actor, as you all probably know, that does the voice of Principal Skinner. Right. And he was like, he didn't like, he did not like this story, but he also, he was not shy about expressing other stories he didn't like. Like he didn't like, he really, really didn't like that George Bush episode we did. And we thought it was one of our best episodes and oh, it I continues to be pretty well left. So we were like, well, his opinion, he, he, I think he, when people put 10 years, people put seven years into this, appreciating this character and you're squandering all that. And we were like, well, maybe, but it doesn't seem that way. Um, and uh, maybe he was right. But in any case, he recorded the lines as a consummate professional that he was. He recorded the lines um, in the same way that he did the George Bush lines, which was excellently. <laughs> and and then he he never mentioned it again. So we um, that was the first we heard of it. And I don't think we actually ever heard anybody's reaction to it either. Because, again, we operated in more of a vacuum in those days because there was no Twitter um, of course. There was all TV Simpsons on Usenet, but they hated every episode, no matter how great it was. <laughs> you know, they hated all the ones that everybody loves now, not just sure. our seasons, all the way back to season three or four. So that we had the long ago stuff looking at that. Um, and we never heard anything about it for years until I think it started appearing. I think probably the first inkling we got um, was on No Homers. I don't even know if No Homer is even still around anymore, but check, uh, uh, possibly. People that people would often vote it as the worst episode or the period in which Simpsons jumped the shark. So that is where I think it wasn't even until probably like 2007 that we first heard that people had that negative reaction to it. But now, anyway, I, I interrupted your flow of questions. So go ahead. Well, that's OK, because uh, you actually took care of uh, the uh, next question. Well, I mean, it was just circling back to that uh, that thing about the hate mail about Mrs. Homer Simpson and, you know, I guess reactions and all that stuff. So uh so I guess uh, the next question to ask in that same vein is, uh, what would you say the balance was between justifiable criticism of the episode and just blatant overreacting, say a 50-50, 60-40 split between the two? Well, I think there's an interesting thing to be said here in, in, with regards to this and other episodes in season eight. Um, I believe... That this, I wouldn't say this is the funniest episode, but I would say it's far from the least funny episode. Right. I think it's a great script by Ken. It's very fun. I would say it's it's not. I mean, it's not it's not it's not as hilarious as, for instance, the Prohibition episode. However, it is as hilarious as the average episode. I would say from season seven and eight in terms of its thing, but it also has a very dramatic, involving story. And this is the thing that I felt when I was watching it just again right now was like, this is a good story. It's very moving. You know, it's very moving the way that the relationships between, between Agnes and principal Skinner, you know, that they agree to live this lie and so forth, which I assume is part of Martin Gare. I've never seen the whole movie, but um, I found that I found the story to be very emotionally moving. And I think honestly, the, the, the signpost that causes people to react very negatively is they don't like that we're that we rewrote the history of Principal Skinner and they don't like especially given people who, people who may have never even heard or seen of this the story the existing story of Martin Gare or Summersby right um those people people who are familiar with Martin Gare or Summersby or just like oh they're doing a parody of that and they didn't like they didn't have this negative reaction to this 
retcon type thing, right. as opposed to people who have never, this is the first time you've been exposed to that story. You're like, what the fuck is going on? These guys have lost their minds who are writing this. Yeah. And I think that's, I would say probably a good percentage of people, 80% of the people who hate this episode or consider it to be a, a signpost of the show's decline are people who probably weren't familiar with the story and found it to be thought that we were being incompetent rather than making it an homage to Martin Gare. It's in fact a very well executed, if I may say mainly by Ken, homage to Martin Gare and not just a sign of desperate weirdos trying flailing to create a story in it and failing. You know, it's like it's I think it's a well constructed version of that story and is very moving. Now it is definitely something that is not for everybody. It wasn't for Harry Shearer. A lot of people don't like it. Uh, and I, I think, you know, people, your, everyone's opinion is valid with regards to the Simpsons. Well, the only thing you could do is kind of take a poll, you know, and a lot of people I think would say this is the worst episode, at least of that era. But if they subtracted, if it said you can't judge it based on the principal Skinner's identity being changed, then I think they probably wouldn't react so negatively to it. Now, at, I've also seen not nearly so much, but also as much criticism of the Frank Grimes episode. Hmm. Um, at the time, people didn't like the Frank Grimes episode either. At the time, many of the episodes that people love now, people didn't like at the time. 22 short I, I'm, films. I'm probably in a slim minority who thought when the – and I was probably like maybe 12 years old when that first aired. But I thought that was actually a, a genius episode. I, I, I didn't see any problem with it because it's Homer just showing that he's Homer. And then there's this outsider just realizing – what is wrong with everybody? <laughs> why is this considered normal? It just, I, I don't know why I resonate. This is with a similar it. story to some extent where an outsider arrives um, and upsets the status quo and people hate it. And, and and vengeance is is wrought by either by the town or by fate itself, which killed Frank Grimes. You know, I think that we, we made it clear you can't come into Springfield and tamper with the status quo or you're going to pay the price. Frank Grimes did as did Sergeant Seymour Skinner paid the price for that. Um, so it's, and, and uh, Chalmers, uh, that, that's why I love Chalmers is because he skates that he all Chalmers sees through the fraud that many people in Springfield are, but he never pursues it to the extent that he does in steamed hams, which is why I wrote that because mm-hmm. I was like, what if Chalmers didn't drop it for once? What if he knew that Skinner was lying and he kept asking questions, but then he still drops it after 14 questions <laughs> this time in steamed hams. So this is an example of that type of story, which is one that we loved where a logical, reasonable person questions the status quo of the town or of Homer and pays the price. Um, so, but yes, Frank Grimes, people also don't like Frank Grimes for that reason. And, and as well as people who are like, Homer's acting like an, a, a, you know, a fool. Homer's acting like a moron. He's acting like a, um, you know, and then we're like, well, that's the joke in that episode that Homer can do whatever he wants. And it doesn't matter because he is blessed in the Simpsons universe. Right. And so, yes, his, his, his behavior, his bad behavior is dialed up a little bit past what he usually did in season seven and eight to make that point. Right. Uh, well, now, as long as we're on the subject of status quos, uh, obviously, things do have to go back to the status quo by the end of this episode. And in spite of that ending, you know, they're sending uh, the real, the quote unquote, real Skinner out on a train. <laughs> I love that. That made me laugh out loud, especially given that they're playing they have a band playing patriotic music and stuff. Right. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Uh, but in uh, in view of that, um, obviously, this uh, episode 
it, it, I, hate, I hate to use a term like it changed the game or it leveled the playing field or anything colloquial like that. But obviously the show has gone on for a long time since then. Would it be safe to say that the principal and the pauper episode sort of opened the door for the status quo to be altered a little more periodically and maybe with a little more or less impunity because there have been some changes over the years to the show, like new characters have been introduced. Uh, people have unfortunately passed away and characters had to be written out and all that stuff. So basically on that end, do you feel the principal and the pauper open the door for these changes to take place? Or do you feel like those are more like isolated incidents and coincidences that people seem to be more accepting of change? I don't think that this episode is, Look, there's only one fact of this. Ep- there's only one thing about this episode that changes the status quo, which is that the character's backstory is rewritten. But there have been far more substantial changes to the u- the fabric of the Simpsons universe before this. Right. You know that the monorail. You know Homer being Homer being on a space mission when he's the most famous man in America for briefly period that happened multiple times. So the same happened to Bart. You know, like the the the. I think that a lot of stuff had already been fundamentally changed, probably beginning with the monorail episode or maybe even with the baseball episode, where it's clear that the fabric of this universe can be expanded. And the only question is whether it can come back. And I think that people, and this is one of them, Matt Groening, by the way, I think has gone on record that he hates this episode too, because this was expanded beyond the point that it could necessarily come back. Because everyone will always remember in their head, that Principal Skinner is really Armin Tamzarian. But I would say the past 25 years have borne out that that's not correct. Principal Skinner has been in hundreds of stories since then. And I don't think the stories have been really damaged by people having the knowledge in their head that he's really Armin Tamzarian. Well, I don't you mean, have to tell me I, Well, that. I don't necessarily mean just Skinner himself. I just mean like in general, because, you know, how much are you willing to accept basically in terms of like letting things change? If that makes sense. Well, I maintain that the show had are that we were stuff was already changing frantically before that. I think I would say that stuff had already been changing since season three, and that this this change was a change of a different type for sure. Um, But is it really that more? Is it really okay? In in Hurricane Nettie, I think we revealed that Ned Flanders' parents had been beatniks. And he'd grown up in the East Village in the you know 50s or whatever with his beatnik parents. Nobody seemed to have an argument with that, although in my opinion, as I, much as I, I love I do, that show. I, I do have to correct you there because uh, that knowledge was actually known beforehand when uh, – Oh, yeah. We wrote that. Flanders okay. So we wrote Principal that. Skinner. That's – okay. Well, uh, forgive me, even though we wrote that part. We're the ones who came up with that. Oh, oh there you go. Never mind. Yeah, but I, I think that it's, it's not really what I – I don't really believe it. You know, I still believe that Ned Flanders grew up in some sort of Christian environment um, rather than being rather than having a reaction. But I think it was funny enough that we didn't care. Um, so I believe that things not as substantial as rewriting his principal Skinner's um, backstory had occurred, but nothing substantial as substantial that had occurred to that point. But things that were beyond the realm of the show had occurred, such as the monorail, such as right. more going into space, right. such as other many other things, including a lot of small jokes that somehow may, may have impinged upon your your perception of the character, like Ned being the children of beatniks. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, no, I, I understand that. Just again, the show being on for as long as it's been, I guess uh, some things do tend to blur together after a while and eventually all the negative stuff winds up being thrown aside. And then at the end of the day, yes, it, it is just another TV show with a lot of dense layers and a lot of other 
things uh, to dig around for. Yeah, so. I mean, and the thing about it is, it's not so much. This is the thing I think you have to, that it is is hard to that when watching this again occurred to me. This actually, the Skinner, the story of the Principal Popper is actually a realistic story. It's not some crazy story that involves fantastical elements or the supernatural or something that is preposterous because this has really happened. This has happened multiple times in the past 500 years and many times. And so, and other than that, the episode is extremely realistic. You know, there's no crazy stuff. There's no talking to to Osmodiar. There's no other stuff (laughs) of that nature. And like, it's, it's the fact that people don't like that many people, including Harry Shearer and Matt Groening, don't like the retconning of his of, of Principal Skinner, which I completely understand. Um, I think it's possible that as a viewer who wasn't in, involved in making the story, I might have felt the same way. But I would also have recognized it as an homage to that that old story. And um, yeah. and I want to say this because I hope we'll talk about this shortly. Uh-huh. And Mad Men is built around this whole premise. Right. Don Draper exactly. stole someone's identity and it's this core of his character. And it came back, you know, they they kept it, they, they dialed it up way a lot in the first season and the pilot, obviously. And then it came back uh, full circle in the final season. And like, that's like, I, I don't, people never said that was the worst part of Mad Men. It, they, they completely bought it. I, I was, I, well, that, that brings me perfectly to the next question. I mean, once that was revealed on Mad Men that Don Draper was, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. I forget the guy's name that he's Dick Whitman. Dick Whitman, yeah. But once that was revealed, did you? That was revealed in the pilot. Uh, well, I'm fairly sure. It's again. It's been a while since I've seen either either one of those things. But like once that was revealed, did you, Josh Weinstein and Ken Keeler, feel like a sense of relief that okay, I'm we're not the only one that's doing or that's done this story? Then there it is. It's, um, I would say that, that, I mean, I wouldn't say that we, I definitely, when I saw it in 2007, when it came out, I was like, hey, that's kind of like Armored Tamsarian. But as you know, Mad Men was the most respected show on TV from that episode forward. So people didn't obviously, like the Simpsons fans didn't have, I think the fact that Skinner had already been around for so many years was what is the root of people's annoyance with that retconning you know don draper dick whitman that was set out in episode one or two as i recall so it wasn't like we were undermining people's enjoyment of a already beloved character and again like you said the story itself going back to martin Gare and all all those i mean that's a tale as old as time it wouldn't surprise me if they wind up doing something like that on another show sometime down the line oh yeah i mean an identity theft i mean you know the whole field of identity theft is a giant thing to begin with already. I mean, Catfish, the whole show is based on that. And like people like obviously the case of Martin Gare or Dick Whitman or Seymour Skinner are extreme cases because the whole community agrees to accept it if they know about it. And 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 they're all living a lie. Um, obviously in Don Draper's case, I think he's the only one that knew that he had taken over Dick that he that Dick Whitman had taken over Don Draper's case. Um, you know right. Don Draper's life. So um, it was like an it, it's an interesting thing. And there's obviously a lot of subtleties to a story like that. But it is a story. I'm sure I'm, I know I'm not an expert on the Bible or ancient Greek pathology. <laughs> my guess is that this my guess is this story probably occurred not only in in ancient Rome and Greece, but it probably in some Bible biblical era type stuff too. Exactly. 
Exactly. Now, uh, I want to try to end this on a on a lighter note because you know obviously <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of contentious uh, stuff involving this uh, moment in TV history, but that does not necessarily mean that it's entirely bad. Now, I know for my show, that's kind of what I have to do. I I, I have to be pedantic. I have to nitpick. Oh yeah, that that's stuff. the point so, of the show. I get it. That's why and, I'm here. And all that stuff. But you wanted but, somebody. I'm I'm here to talk about the show and maintain again that I think it's a great episode. Ken Keeler, I think, thinks it's the best thing he's ever written. Oh, sure I think the is. best thing he ever wrote was that Harlem Globetrotters episode of Futurama. The oh, first I love one. that. But, Absolutely. but this, Absolutely. I'd yeah. say this is in that this is, I mean, his it's favorite thing. And certainly anybody with further interest in this can Google some of the remarks Ken has made about it, which, and he's far more perceptive of the underlying issues with this episode than I am. Um, and he has a lot more to say about it. But, uh, you know, I, I, and I agree, it's a very well written episode. And it's, and I said it's moving as well. Absolutely. Now, uh, with all that in mind, uh, was there any uh, particular moments in the episode that you felt kind of like, you know, were there jokes that stuck out the most that kind of would hopefully uh, deter people from how contentious it would be? Like my favorite joke and this I don't even know this counts as a joke or not, but just for some reason in the third act, when uh, everybody's at Skinner's uh, flop house, uh, you know, trying to convince him to come home. And he's going on this whole rant like, this is Armin's place. This is Armin's copy of Swank. This is Armin's frozen peas. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why, but that always makes me laugh the hardest. But like, is, was there anything else in that episode that just really stuck out the most in terms of humor content? Oh, I mean, I like that. I really do like that singing. So what, I, what makes me laugh is, is Homer saying, may I see your copy of Swank, Armin? And sitting there reading Swank right in front of his little kids <laughs> and smiling <laughs> as he looks at it. I love that. I love the... um. I love the I let's just say I love the ending. I love the fact that that he's tired that he's tied to a railroad flat car and and tied up with ropes and the train slowly drives off. It's like an old Frank Capra type thing, you know, like a musical from the 40s or whatever too. Um and that 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 the fact that people don't respect they don't care that he's a war hero because they don't like him. That's part of the thing and I think that's very much the story of Frank Grimes as well is that Frank Grimes is a very deserving man. But he's just prickly and people don't like that. Um, that it's so anyway, I love that stuff. I love there's that stuff at the beginning. There's a lot of lines which I consider are have made it that are still like I like my cough, my beverine with creamium. People still gray with creamium, people still like that <laughs> a line. There's a couple other jokes in there yeah. that are very enjoyable. Um, and but my favorite by far is the end. Now I'd also say there's a line if you look at some of the interviews Ken has done about this topic. There was a line that we cut out for time that I think Ken found that might have taken the sting off it to some extent, where it was it talks about how there's a you know, Springfield is a community of people who like things the way they are, mm. and and they don't like change, and, and it's some it's some sort of self reflexive thing about the viewers being that way as well. I think the thing that would have taken the sting off it is some silly thing at the end where Homer comes out on stage and says. That for everybody who objects to this, it was all a dream, you know, or some crap like that. Right. That's some half-assed way of buying it off, so people don't be like, people wouldn't be like, it's some sort of turning point <laughs> that it was, a, it was all a dream. Well, uh, given the fact that I've covered the Dallas Dream season in the past, uh, yeah, some dreams are best left in the subconscious. Yeah. Let's just say that. Uh, just a couple more questions, uh, and I guess this one is uh, the big philosophical question, uh, given. Everything that's uh, happened in not not just necessarily in The Simpsons, but just, I guess, in TV in general, 
Can one episode of a TV series truly break its reputation or would it take like multiple episodes to do that? Or is it just knee jerk reactions all around? That's a great question. And I think it's a diff. I mean, I, there's multiple answers to that, which I think is are also determined by are determined by the medium. Like, are you talking like it, it was obviously different in broadcast television in the days of broadcast television where there were three or four networks and the ratings that came in that night were what, what you live or die by those. Right. As opposed to a streaming service, mm-hmm. like a streaming service that like people just don't complete the episodes. Well, people did. I just found it. You know, I just heard a few minutes ago, you know, Amazon spent a billion dollars on that Lord of the Rings show. Yeah. And only 39% of people even bothered to complete it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like that's, was there an episode? Was there an episode that turned them off or was it just too long and boring? Right. I guess we'll never know. Like, whereas in the case of jumping the shark or whatever with Fonzie, Right. I don't think that really killed the show. It, the show was already running on fumes probably at that point anyway. And that's the episode was very popular at the time. It only in retrospect do people choose that as a turning point in the history of happy days. So I don't believe also in the era of broadcast television, it was a well-known thing that even people who claim to love a show would only see one out of every three episodes. So I don't believe that a that one single episode could, no matter how shitty the episode was, I mean, even great a great TV series like Bob Newhart right. and things of that back in the day had had a couple of crappy episodes. And it's not in general, unless the whole thing is on a rapid downhill traje- trajectory already, right. it's very hard. I don't think one show, one episode, no matter how lousy, can kill a thing because simply because people not are, not everybody's going to see those episodes. And now it's different in a thing where I don't think, I also think that the stakes are different for drama and for comedy. I think in drama, well, we all saw what happened with Game of Thrones. Right. You know, like people got pissed off at the last season and they were super pissed off at the last two episodes, but it didn't matter because the series is already over. Now, did those guys kill? I don't think they killed the franchise because that House of the Dragon thing was still pretty popular, um, but they definitely alienated a lot. I mean, all you hear now is about it's used as a metaphor for killing the show. It's the, the final season of Game of Thrones. So the audience had a very negative reaction to that, but the audience also had a very negative reaction to the end of The Sopranos, which I think now years later, people realize, oh, that was pretty cool. I think that really did a good job of telling the story um, of ending the show in a way that people expected. Now, not every show can end like Breaking Bad, which had the best ending of all television shows, I think, was an operatic story that we were all on board for that ended in an absolutely magnificent way. In comedies... Well, what makes the episode bad? Is it funny? Is it not funny? Or is it boring? I think most dramas, unless they do something egregious with the characters, such as was done with Daenerys Targaryen, apparently, to people who loved the, the loved her so much, right? there's not really one thing that can be done other than slowly boring the audience to the point that they don't want to watch anymore. Hmm. With comedy, I also think that's the thing. You could do all sorts of crazy episodes, you know, that are mashed at a lot of serious episodes that were completely flew in the face of comedy but people didn't care because they liked the characters and they knew that it was going to get funny again next week so like there's my point being that's the long way around of saying i don't think one episode can kill the show i think in retrospect people assign blame to certain episodes like jumping the shark where the show is already on a downward trajectory anyway or maybe some behind the scenes thing like yes sometimes if for instance 
in the case of, you know, a famous actor dies and they try to replace the character with someone else. Of course. Sometimes it works. Other times people hate it and the show immediately falls off the map. But again, that's more from the days of broadcast television where like, oh no, the ratings were terrible when we replaced Valerie Harper with Sandy Duncan or whatever it was they did back then. Um, of course. But those are like, those things are few and far between these days because there aren't, there aren't clear signposts. I hope I gave you a thorough answer. Oh, oh, oh that, that that's definitely uh, a lot to think of. And I now have a forum weapon for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> now, so now that brings us to our final regular question, and then we'll get to the bonus questions. Uh, after all is said and done, given the opportunity to do so with the same people and especially knowing what you know now and the aftermath and all that stuff, would you make the principal and the pauper again? And if so... Are there any things that you would do with the episode differently? Yes, I just told you, but I will say it again. Now watching it, I would have done the whole episode exactly the same, except I would at the very end, I would add a 10 or 15 second tag where someone comes out to buy it off in a, in a crappy, in a jokily crappy way. Like Homer says, this, hope you all enjoy this episode of Springfield Fantasy Theater. This didn't really happen. For anybody who didn't like it, it didn't really happen. It was all a dream. Thanks, the end. You know, something like that. <laughs> and it still would have made people mad, but at least people, you would have, like, for some reason, people consider this episode canonical. Like, this, as opposed to other episodes, like, this one really happened. Like, Principal Skinner really is Alvin Tamsarian, but how many other times have there been a, probably a thousand over the course of the series or something that essentially tampered with the underpinnings of the series? Like Mo was it being Italian. There's a joke about Mo being Italian one yeah. time. Like, oh, really? Is he Italian? Because he sure didn't seem Italian. But like, like, there's hundreds of jokes like that. This is a much longer, admittedly, a much longer, more in-depth undermining of the character's backstory. But characters' backstories are undermined all the time in short, small ways. After the interview, there were a few non-Simpsons-related bonus questions that I asked Bill to sort of cap things off. One of those questions, I'll admit, was an attempt at some retroactive penance made towards a review that we did back in November of 2022, among other sins that I'm still trying to repent to this day. We are now at the bonus round. Here are the uh, optional bonus questions. Uh, I am actually interested in uh, the stuff that you've done uh, post Simpsons. You mentioned uh, Mission Hill. Uh, what else? I mean, and by the way, Mission Hill, one thing I've been dying to know that you pr probably answered a number of times to other people. Did Jim ever get his chicken dipsies at the end of that uh, animatic it's late and i'm starving and i need food before i can decide i gotta get some chicken dipsies grandma's probably sitting up late worrying about us i just need chicken dipsies so i can think state sanctioned indian gambling drinking girls can't decide anything without some chicken dipsies sunflowers make you feel free i just need chicken you probably, you probably don't they're know out that. of chicken dipsies I, of course, I know what you're talking about. Okay, okay, this is right. one of my, that's my favorite episode of, of Mission Hill. And I have a lot of favorite episodes of Mission Hill, but that's my very favorite one. And I appreciate you having the deep dive knowledge that to ask that question. I well, love it. It was only it. a six never, minute animatic. I, I just felt like I was being left hanging there. I wish there was yeah, more. Yeah, well, they only animated that one act, but it was, um, I, I, yes, I don't think he ever did. And I think that's part of what drove him crazy. It was, I don't want to reveal the ending of the episode to anybody who oh, hasn't okay. figured out, but it was an elaborate plot by Posey to end up being taken seriously and get to be turned into a field of wildflowers. And she, um, 
I, as I recall, she was the one who who bought the last order of chicken dipsies and threw them away in order to make Jim crazy. <laughs> wow. That is, uh, uh, that that's cruelty at a level I did not even think was possible. And this is Posey. That's one of the best things about Posey is that she has, she's devious and it doesn't come out very much because she doesn't seem devious, but the way she made sure to massage that pimp so that he could feel it when he, she kicked him off the roof, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that, that, that brought her out. And that's the kind of thing that made her a fun character to write for is that she had that surprising aspect to her personality. All right. Very good. And uh, I think you mentioned a bunch of uh, other things that you've been doing at the uh, beginning of the interview when you introduced yourself. You mentioned a book, uh, Space 1969. Oh, yeah. So I have, well, I'll tell you, I mean, just the extremely short version sure. is that Josh and I work periodically on things together and periodically on things by ourselves. In the past years, I have been, uh, we both worked on Futurama, as I said, we both worked on Disenchantment um, for a long time. That was that Matt Groening show on Netflix. Uh, we both worked on um, some other pilots that didn't go very far. And I worked on Portland. I was, you know, got a writer's guild award for working in Portlandia for a couple of years. Um, and then since then, for the past couple of years, I was working on close enough, which was a magnificent show on HBO max. Oh, you did that. Oh, yeah. Nice. I was the head writer for the last two years. Uh, and the last year never actually ended up getting fully animated because it was canceled in that huge purge that HBO would max did where they canceled 70 shows and canceled all their animated shows and fired the whole department of the animation. Good old and, corporate yeah, America. I know it was crazy. And so I was head writer of close enough for season three and season four. And that was a great show. And that was my most recent job um, prior, but also yes, the thing, my to plug the things that are, are gettable by the audience Um I wrote an audio book, which is my, it's, I, you know, the thing is, it's kind of an audio book. It's kind of a podcast and it falls in between those cracks, but it's a, it's like a radio show is what it is. Right. It's 10 episodes, about 30 or 40 minutes long, a piece of a story called space 1969, which is the thing I've most wanted to write in my entire life. Audible. If you, if it's an audio book, I think you'll enjoy it. It's on audible.com. It stars Natasha Leone takes oh, place nice. in the universe where John F. Kennedy did not, die from being shot but in fact just became a little a little crazy and decided to expand the u.s into space as quickly as possible so when the series begins it's his third inauguration day and america has a space station and is planning a colony on the moon uh natasha leone is a nurse on the space station who gets drawn into this elaborate conspiracy and for anybody like keep in mind i was only three years old at the time that this occurred but i have a fascination with that era and the pop culture of that era and so forth. And there's a lot of things, you know, from Muhammad Ali to the Beverly Hillbillies to how, you know, all that kind of thing that, that it deals with. And it's um, people have really enjoyed it. And I'd say it's the most successful thing I've ever done that was not created by Matt Groening. So um, and I am I believe that we are almost finished with the negotiations and the contract for me to write the sequel to that, um, which I'm very excited about. Well, I'm definitely going to have to listen to that right now or at least when we're done here and. And now uh, I, I kind of have to feel remiss slash- And the food thing, the well, food we'll, stuff. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But, okay. before, but before we do, um, I kind of feel remiss have, having to ask this question only because, and again, this is just sort of the worst case scenarioist in me triggering this a little bit, but like a, a couple of years ago, I did this episode about a TV pilot. And unfortunately, I missed certain details about that show's production and I wound up having a- 
speak to him through Facebook and just tell him, look, I'm sorry, blah, 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 blah. And the only reason why I'm bringing that up is because a couple months ago, I did an episode about the mullets, which I know you and Josh did for the UPN network. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious as to whether or not I either missed a detail or got a detail wrong or anything like that. Just I was just curious if you heard that episode. And if so, I didn't hear the episode. You did not. OK. Have then, you seen the mullets? I had to for the episode. For Where the, did you see it? Uh, it I haven't seen it. Oh, there's uh, episodes on YouTube, I believe. Um, no, there aren't. There, there are. There was there weren't six months ago when I last checked. I. Oh, oh my God! Well, that well, incredible, well, this, really. Well, well, this was back in November, and it's probably somebody who pirated it. But let me just uh, double check the mullets. UPN. Yep, it's still there. They're all still there. I don't fucking believe it. This is a revelation because I don't even have those episodes. I have a couple of DVDs, which don't work. Um, uh, and I haven't seen them since like the days. Some of them, but since the days we filmed them. So yeah. hold on a minute. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's some, this, uh, this it's some news. there's a, several users, actually. There's uh, one called The Viewing Room. There's one called The Retro Depot. There's a lot of really. Uh, this is amazing. Oversaturated. Well, anyway, just because I wanted to be sure. Okay, I, oh, I my did, God. There is the whole episode, the whole episode of number two. Yep. There's a whole episode of number one. There's yep. all of number two. Uh -huh. uh, like only and a handful of shows, really. Well, but, it's final show. It's 48 minutes long. What's that? Oh, that's a that's a band. What? Raging Waters. Oh my God, they are oh, on here. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, Five uh, ago. so 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 anyway, I did an episode about it, and I was just that this was the biggest thing that I was worried about because I didn't know if you actually heard the episode that I did, but I didn't want to get into like another thing where I missed information. So at your own leisure, feel free to listen to the show, and if you want to do like a follow up that says, "Hey, you, here's what you missed," blah blah blah, just like mock outrage i guess i don't know but I, I i just tried to do it with as much information as i possibly could as i do with all my episodes and everything but uh that's uh that's why i wanted to bring that up and i can just edit this part oh, well it sounds great out. i mean i don't like i would never go down the road of saying that show was um apex of creative genius it was designed just to be funny and it came out you know it was like we want to do we want to do something that was not that was going to appeal to a wider audience than mission hill Right. And that was designed to be funny and just be funny and like and and like Beavis and Butthead. It was actually inspired by Dumb and Dumber and Beavis and Butthead and other things of that nature. And we had a great staff and I've and it's one of the greatest working experiences we ever had making that show. And furthermore, it seemed like it was going to be a huge hit uh, at the time. And part of it because people, the audiences absolutely loved it. Um, and they the tested great, and the audiences, the live audiences at the show, just were going bananas. We yeah, we did, we, we, for this we did. Thing. Yeah, we did mention that in the episode. I guess it's because uh, UPN was benefiting from uh, WWE SmackDown because they thought it would fit in with that. And I think, that but was... then they couldn't. The, the, you know, this is what we learned. They also thought that was the case. But then what happened is they. WWE SmackDown was paying for that time. Right. They, they were paying to have their show on at that time, and they did not want the mullets impinging upon their paid time. Right. So they stuck us after these other shows that were completely incompatible with the mullets. And this was an era, this is, as I said, in the era when broadcast your ratings that night on the broadcast, that was where you lived or died. So we didn't get good ratings, and they just put on like bland romantic comedy to go with whatever they had, and the mullets right. never came back, and it was a huge ripoff. Right, right, right. I, I, yeah, I think that was uh, 
like about maybe 75% of what you said is probably what I said. Although I, I was really more like, I, I'm no, I'm never going to, I was never going to be UPN's target audience. And we did like a whole month of shows from the UPN network that people seem to uh-huh. have hated the most, but we don't go out of our way to hate a show just because other people do. We discover like the how and the why, like why did it get the reputation it did? Why did it turn out this way and all that stuff? So, I mean, for for the record, I thought the mullets was okay, but I did not think UPN was the right network for it. And if it weren't for SmackDown, maybe something else might have taken place and all that stuff. Just, I think it might have been a better Fox. Well, that's the show. same thing that happened with the WB. It was and not the right Mission place Hill, for, yeah. for Mission Hill. Yes, and it was like that's the problem is that we were doing these shows that were not right for the networks that they were put on. And that would ultimately prove to be their undoing. You know, Mission Hill had the second life on Adult Swim uh, that where they ran this game of 13 episodes over and over and over for seven years. And now it has a huge cult fan base that is coming out to see us at these shows we're doing all over the country. So like that, Mullets did not have that blessing because it you know got lost in the cracks. Right, right. Well, uh, again, the episode's up there to listen to at your own leisure. I cannot leisure. wait and, to see them. Thank you. And, and, and also to see these episodes on YouTube. And and my apologies in advance if I say anything that is completely incorrect. Just That's wanted... okay. It wasn't designed to be a highbrow show. And as okay. USA Today said very fairly, it's a, in the USA Today's review of it said, like, it's really stupid, but so was Gomer Pyle, and a lot of people love that. And I was like, you know, that's fair. Well, that lasted that's 10 fair. years itself there. Right. So. so I'm like, that was that, that was it. It was a really fun show to make. It was really funny. It made me laugh like crazy. And that was the goal of that show. And it succeeded in that <laughs> very small goal. Okay. And on that note, we are now going to get to the uh, capstone here. Uh, yeah, like I said at the end there, uh, you have been known for many things, many, many things comedically, non-comedically, I guess, you know, especially that America's most wanted thing kind of threw me for uh-huh. a loop there. But uh, after all that, how did you get involved in reviewing fast food and foreign snacks? It's always something I've been very interested in. And this is like that I always, you know, back in, even at the high school days, I was like, hey, McDonald's has a new burger. McDonald's has these new things called chicken McNuggets. I want to go try them. I got to go try them and I want to tell everybody about them if I like them. So I've always been like that. And my audience has just grown over the years for that kind of thing. I used to kind of do it on Twitter. And then um, exactly almost five years ago to this week, McDonald's came out with their fresh beef quarter pounders, which was the first time they hadn't used frozen beef. Right. So I went to review those and I was like, "Eh, this is not going to be as good if I have to type it. Maybe I should just make a video. Yeah. I made the video, put on my Instagram and it immediately got a a lot of attention, like from McDonald's. The official McDonald's account was like, hey, that's awesome. Congratulations on your new career as a food blogger. And I was like, hey, that's cool. And then the head chef of McDonald's also um, commented on it. And we've subsequently subsequently have become friends. and that's like, so I was like, this is fun. And I kept doing it. It's so much more fun than doing TV because you don't have to, like, I can say, I'm going to do, re- I'm going to review this new Taco Bell item. And then three hours later, the video is out there and it didn't have to go through 10 months of development and hundreds of executives you know, nitpicking it to death. It's very fun for me to do. And so over the course of the past five years, I've been taken more and more seriously in this field and to the point where I'm. I'm on TV talking about it. I'm on the sh- regularly on the show, The Food That Built America on the History Channel talking about food. Mm. And I get to write articles and I get to appear on various other things just as a food expert. 
and and I love it. And hopefully, I'm going to hopefully sometime soon. I'm going to have my own show, like Phil Rosenthal. Yeah, you know, has somebody feed Phil. Yeah, I mean, and he's my hero. And I have an idea for a show that is a little bit more, a little bit meaner than his show, <laughs> and <laughs> that I really want to do. And I'm working on uh, on it with a, a pretty prominent uh, reality show company right now. So I'm hoping that is the case. And then collaterally to that, I have started this thing called the Steamed Ham Society. Now, everybody listening to this probably knows what steamed hams is, but what it is, it's a euphemism for hamburgers. Right. Uh, and so if you are interested in joining up, it's the steamed, just go to steamedhamsociety.com. There are multiple levels that you can join at. There's multiple rewards. And it's it's really a club for people who like food and want to talk about, hey, did you try this new chicken sandwich? Hey, did you see this recipe for smoking your barbecue? And it's not just low end food either. I mean, it's food. So we have some real gourmets on there too. And it's like, but it's food of every type from the new flavor of Cheetos to how do you, uh, you know, best cook beef Wellington at home and that type of thing. And that we have live streams, we have a newsletter, we have merchandise and it's really fun. And, um, that is about a quarter of my time and effort income these days is doing stuff for the steamed ham society. There's also special levels for Simpsons fans where we have events. You know, we've had a lot of prominent Simpsons people on special steamed ham society live streams uh, and there's special merchandise. And there's even a level of people who want me to read their scripts because I now charge to do that because it used to take so much time. Um, but if you want, if you're a writer and you like want me to give you intense, well thought out feedback, um, you can sign up the Steam Ham Society level. It's quite expensive, but I've gotten a fair number of people to do it because um, it allows me to concentrate on their script rather than you know having to cram it in on my weekend or whatever. Um, so that's another aspect of it. Well, as long as we're on the subject of uh, all things uh, consumable, this is now going to be the part where I'm going to turn my camera on because I want to show you the stuff that I would like to send you when everything is all said and done. So stand by, please. Fantastic. Afterwards, I showed Bill a collection of various international versions of Kit Kat bars, Oreos, Lay's, and Doritos chips that I had purchased from a local shop that sells all kinds of snacks from around the world, which... I bought because I had a feeling that this interview wasn't going to be done just because. I mean, how often in life does one get a chance to talk to someone who was at the front lines of one of the most popular TV shows of all time? On that note, I would like to give a special thanks to 845 Exotic Snacks of Middletown, New York for simply existing. And yes, they are on Facebook just in case you want to say hello and that telehealth sent you. But more than that, Thank you once again to Bill Oakley for not only being patient with me, but, but also for the interview being one of the moments in my life that I certainly will never forget. And be sure to follow him not only at steamedhamsociety.com, but also on his various social media feeds at thatbilloakley. A reminder that just by clicking on this show and listening to it, we're going to be donating $1 per download to the WWF. With all the warriors and Hulkamaniacs, you guys are in a lot of trouble. How about it, Ultimate One? With a special referee, like Sick Justice. Granted, it's going to be called down the middle 50-50, but in no way, shape, or form. For the last time, not that one. And take Rick Derringer with you. Anyway, we'll be keeping track of how many downloads this show will get from July 9th to July 23rd of 2023. Whatever the final number is as of 8pm Eastern Time on July 23rd, that's how much we're going to be donating to the World Wildlife Fund. 
And because we recently hit the milestone of 50,000 total downloads for the podcast, our maximum pledge for this year will be no higher than $500. The more you listen, the more we donate. Simple as that. If, on the other hand, you feel weird about all of that, you can always donate to them directly at WWF.org. Not only for regular donations, but the holidays are coming up in a few months, and they do have a wide array of plush animals that symbolize adopting one of the dozens of species that they protect. Once again, go to WWF.org to find out more. In the meantime, that's all we've got. We'll see you in the fall. We'll put up a couple premium shows from behind the paywall during the summer. But for now, thanks for listening, and here are the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. We, we try to straddle the line between a factual show and add a little, you know, uh, I guess, basically. Theatrical, I guess, is the best way to put it. So uh, we just need to think of a way to summon you, uh, well, not down here, down here, but like... Because I'm writing a script for the episode that's going to lead into this one right now, and basically it's just me placing a really, really, really long-distance phone call from hell, and and basically uh, just uh, I don't have anything written for this. Mo- this is why I was asking about improv and all that stuff. So just basically, like maybe how did you get my number? Is this the same guy that talked about the mullets? What do you want? Blah 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 blah. So I, this is just so that I can introduce you. I can wing it, no problem. If you do your end. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Then I know exactly what to say. Then let me just, uh, all right, ring, 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 and uh, you pick up. Hello, uh, this is Capital One. I told you I've sent in the payment already. Uh, no, this is not Capital One, but we are just as devious. Uh, I what can work, I do for you? I work for a podcast that happens to talk about bad TV shows. I'm a guy that got sent down here to the underworld because I stole cable. Big mistake. And now my punishment is to review some of the worst TV shows of all time. I need your assistance. And where do on I something. where do I come in? Uh, where do I come in to the? Okay, before I hang up, where do I come in to the aspect of worst TV shows of all time? Well. I don't want to offend you off the bat, but I did cover something that you did for a certain TV network that no longer exists. Oh, I've done a two, at least two things for networks that no longer exist, but I didn't consider them to be worst shows of all time. What are they? Well, let's be clear here. I am a Mission Hill fan, so you don't need to okay, worry about that. Okay, it's not that one. Then I know which one it is. I, didn't, I did not hear your, your take on the mullets. Presumably, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to do this to hedge my bets just in case you did hear that episode and... 
you wanted to launch a lawsuit or whatever it is showbiz people do these days, would you like to talk about The Simpsons? Yeah. Where does that come into being among the worst TV shows of all time? Roll the credits. Okay, and that'll lead into the episode. Okay, great. Okay. Oh, man, Bill, thank you very much, not just for your time and all the other stuff that comes in between, but just like this is going to be something I'm never going to forget for the rest of my life. So I'm just going to stop my audacity here and I'm going to stop. A Bill Oakley, Josh Weinstein production.